You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. The Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis ends with the book, The Last Battle. It tells the story of the final days of the land of Narnia. And near the end of the book, the children, along with King Tyrion, um, the last king, are together. And they enter a small wooden stable, only to find an entire world inside it. There they also meet some of the characters from the earlier books, uh, people like Lord Diggory and Queen Lucy. Listen to Lewis as he writes. Tyrion looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. And remember, they're, they're inside a small stable. There was the blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. And this is the part I especially want you to hear. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. A clear reference to the baby Jesus. He was small, and yet there was a, a magnificence, an enormous scope about him. There was much more than meets the eye. From all outward appearances, he was just another baby that had been born. Nothing out of the ordinary. The only ones who cared or, or even knew about his birth were his parents, an innkeeper perhaps, and some lowly shepherds. And, and they knew about him only because a flash mob of angels showed up in the night sky scaring them half to death. But by and large, his birth went unnoticed. It appeared to be completely insignificant. John, the author of this fourth gospel, asserts that nothing could be further from the truth. His birth was massively significant. It was an event that changed everything. What I'd like to do this morning is to explore with you what John has to say about Jesus' birth. I want to look at, the, at Christmas according to John. From a volume perspective, it's not much. Out of 21 chapters in a fairly big book, John only gives a few verses to what we know as the Christmas story. But all oh, the truths that are packed inside these few words. In verses 14 through 18... John shows us several things. He shows us two mind-boggling realities about Jesus. He shows us two breathtaking gifts from Jesus. And he shows us two heartfelt responses to Jesus. That's what we're going to explore this morning. Two mind-boggling realities about Jesus. Two breathtaking gifts from Jesus and two heartfelt responses to Jesus. First, the two mind-boggling realities about our Lord. The first of these astonishing realities is in that phrase, and the Word became flesh. 
Let, let me try to unpack that a bit. And, and let's start with how John identifies Jesus. He calls Him the Word. Now, that's an unusual and an, and an intriguing way to describe someone. John could have simply named Him as Jesus, because that's who he's talking about, or he could have used another title. He could have called Him the Son of God. But instead, he chooses to, to refer to Him as the Word. Why that term? The word, word, carries with it the idea of message, expression, communication. This word, this Jesus, John is saying, is God's self-disclosure, God's self-revelation. If you want to get to know a person, the best way to go about that is to talk with him or her, to engage in a conversation. I could watch you, I could observe you, and I could come up to, with some, some conclusions. They might be right, they might be not so right, but I, I could come up with some observations about you. But if I really wanted to get to know you, who you really, truly are, the best way I know to do that is to engage you in a conversation, to get you to ask you questions, to get you to talk. Tell me about what you feel, what you think, what's going on in your world. I would want to hear you talk, your speech, your words, what you say and how you say what you say. That's the best way to, get, to really get to know you. John is declaring that Jesus, the Son of God, is the clearest and the ultimate revelation of God. He's how we know what God the Father is truly like, what He's really all about. Already in this chapter, there are some remarkable things written about this word. Right at the very beginning, verse 1, John tells us that he was in the beginning with God. In other words, he's eternal. The verse goes on to state he was with God and he was God. Somehow he's both in relationship to God and he is God at the same time. This amazes me. Right off the bat, John immerses us into the deep waters of the doctrine of the Trinity John goes on to assert that this Word created everything that exists. He's the creator of all. And then as if that's not enough, we learn that He's the light of the world. So we're given these incredible and lofty insights into this being, this person that John's describing. And then we come to verse 14 and we learn that this eternal God expression being, this infinite being who is God and who's with God, became flesh. And by using the term flesh, John's asserting that the Son of God became a human being. This infinite, magnificent being took on human nature in all its frailty and weakness. Scholars and theologians sometimes use the word incarnation to emphasize that He took on meat and bones. He's incarnated. He's enfleshed. The point is, he didn't just appear to look like a man. He, he actually became one of us. He had a body, soul, mind, will, emotions, the whole nine yards. I don't know if, if any of you remember, it was almost 25 years ago now, Joan Osborne came out with a song on secular radio called One of Us. 
In the song, uh, there are a lot of questions, theological questions about God. But the question that kept getting asked over and over again is, what if God was one of us? I was trying to figure out the theology of the song, and and I'm not sure I I fully understand it, but I know the answer. (laughs) I know the answer to the question is He was. He became one of us. He became flesh. Now, if you're if you're having trouble wrapping your mind around this concept of the incarnation, let me assure you, you are not alone. Sam Storms, a pastor, an author, and a very smart man, calls this verse, John 1.14, the most amazing verse in the Bible. And then he explains, by amazing, I mean incomprehensible, stunning, bewildering, beyond the capacity of the human mind to fully grasp. And then to help us reflect on how stunning, how amazing this truly is, he wrote a long list of things that it means. And I won't take the time to read them all, but but let me highlight some of the things on his list. The Word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. He goes on to say the independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The loved became the hated. The exalted was humbled. And he concludes by saying from ruler to being ruled, from power to weakness. The more you ponder the incarnation, the more you realize how staggering it truly truly is. Pastor Tim Keller, in a sermon of his on this text, used a few words which I think drives home even deeper what the incarnation is all about. He said, what the Word made flesh means is the Word made accessible The Word made vulnerable, and then he adds, it ultimately means the Word made killable. And if you know the rest of the story, how Jesus' earthly life ends, you know that He was indeed brutally killed. In in fact, His cruel death on on that Roman cross is the cornerstone of our faith. In order for that to happen, He first had to be made killable. He had to become flesh. What John is wanting us to consider as we read, as we ponder his words, even if we can't fully comprehend it, is just how far the Son of God lowered himself in becoming human. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is getting at in Philippians 2 where he describes Jesus as being in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The incarnation was an act of profound humility. 
Paul also insists that it was an act of profound love. He states that Jesus did this looking to the interest of others, which is a pretty good definition of love. Love can be measured by how far you are willing to stoop, to bend down, to lower yourself for the sake of another, to help them up. And the eternal, infinite Son of God limited Himself. He lowered Himself beyond what we can even grasp. He condescended, He stooped to the extent of becoming one of us, and then He went even farther to the extent of surrendering His own life on a cross in your place and in mine. That is mind-boggling. And if you grasp it by faith, it's also life-changing. Now, as mind-boggling as the incarnation is, John isn't done with what's astounding. He adds a second reality, which is also incredible. The second reality is found in the rest of verse 14, which goes on to read, And He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word, this eternal Creator God became a man, and He dwelt among us. Some translations read, He lived among us. Others, uh, a few say something along the lines of, He made His home among us. And, and those are good translations, but I think they miss an element that John wants us to see by his choice of words that somehow gets missed in our English Bible. The word that he uses literally means to pitch a tent, to dwell in a tent. John wants us to think in our minds of, of setting up a tent in order to live in it. He wants us to have that picture in our minds because he wants us to think about another tent dwelling, another time when someone incredibly lived in a tent. All the way back in Exodus 25, God told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Have them construct a place for me that I may reside there. And that sanctuary, that place, per God's instructions, was what? It was a tent, a tabernacle. God wanted to dwell with them in a tent smack dab in the middle of all their tents. And that was remarkable. That God, holy, majestic, all-powerful, perfect, sinless, would take up residence right in the center of His fickle people. And of course, as you can imagine, there were perimeters set up, boundaries, if you will. You couldn't just walk right up to God's tent for a leisurely chat. You had to approach Him in a prescribed way. You had to approach Him by way of blood sacrifices. You had to go through priests, God's, the, the, the holy men of Israel. But still, the fact that God would dwell in their midst was astounding. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, after this tabernacle is constructed and, and set up, we read this. Then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
that first tent, that first tabernacle was filled with glory, with God's radiantly brilliant presence. And now here, John asserts, boldly asserts, that there's been another tabernacling. And John goes on to say, and we have seen His glory. We have beheld His radiance. It was glory, he says, as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, like Father, like Son. Just as God the Father revealed Himself to be glorious, so has God the Son. Now, not everyone saw Jesus' glory. Perhaps John has in mind that time that he and James and Peter got to go up on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. And according to Matthew's account, Jesus' face shone like the sun and His clothes became white as light. Perhaps that's what he's referring to. But as impressive as that was, I don't think that's what John primarily has in mind here. I'm convinced he's referring to Jesus being full of grace and truth. He says that's what we saw as glorious. But more on that in a moment. Before we get there, I want to make sure we hear God's heart in Jesus' tabernacling with us, His dwelling with us. All other religions are essentially about our attempts to reach up to God to somehow prove ourselves, somehow do what is right, somehow earn our, His favor so that we can achieve and attain up to God. Christianity is unique in that it's about God coming down to us, God being with us, God wanting to be with us. We actually see this all throughout the Bible. It began in the Garden of Eden when God would come to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day to walk with them. We see this at the other end of the Bible as well. We see this, um, that this will continue on into eternity future. Revelation 21, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. You hear God's desire to be with us? It's constant. It's all throughout. If I were to ask you, over the Christmas holidays, if you have free time, if you, you know, you're off from work, off from school, whatever, who do you want to be with? Invariably, your answer would be, I want to be with those I love. I want to be with those I, I enjoy, that I like being with. Precisely. God says, I want to be with you. The birth of Jesus, His tabernacling with us, is God loudly declaring, Jesus loudly proclaiming, I want to be with you. It's a strong statement of His love. John first points us to two mind-boggling realities about Jesus. A second thing he directs our attention to are two breathtaking gifts from Jesus. There are two things in particular that John highlights that Jesus gives, that he provides. And we've already seen them at the end of verse 14 where John describes Jesus as being full of 
grace and truth. In verse 16, John adds, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As John experienced Jesus during the three, three and a half years that he had the privilege of following Him, of learning from Him, of watching Him, what stood out to him about Jesus was His grace and His truth. He spoke the truth like no one else. He was absolutely committed to reality, to what was true. He never backed off from that. And yet at the same time, he exuded grace. He extended favor. Pastor John Piper helps me understand what John is saying here. He writes, The glory of God in Christ is His gracious disposition to us without compromising His truthfulness, His faithfulness to Himself. And this gracious disposition is very, very great. That's why he uses the word full. The word full modifies glory. The glory of the Son of God is full of graciousness toward us sinners without compromising God's truth. And that, my friend, is glorious indeed. One thing that makes it so glorious is that we don't deserve God's grace. We desperately need it, but we don't deserve it. Because of our sin, we don't deserve God's favor. We deserve His wrath, His judgment. And, and, and there's no way we, by ourselves, can improve ourselves, that we can make up for it. We, we can in no way earn God's favor. But praise God, simply through faith in Jesus, there is grace. There is His undeserved favor, His unmerited favor. I love verse 16, which reads, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Um, there's, there's a bit of debate what this means. It literally reads grace instead of grace. Is this looking back to the Old Testament and saying God was gracious and give us in the, old, the, the old law. Now He's more gracious giving us uh, you know, what we have in Christ. I like what one commentary said. This means grace replenishing grace. In other words, it's continual, outpouring grace from Jesus. It makes me think of what Paul said in Ephesians 1 when he says, We, we believers in Christ, we're the recipients of the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us. God doesn't just give a little bit, a little morsel of grace. Oh, he's so extravagant. He's so generous with His favor. John's point is that when Jesus came to earth, He came with an overabundance of grace and truth so that He could gift you and me with what we need more than anything else in the world. We need His grace and His truth. And as the rest of the book of John makes clear, the way we get these gifts is simply by faith. Two mind-boggling realities about Jesus, two breathtaking gifts from Jesus. A third component that John highlights that he reveals here 
is two heartfelt responses to Jesus. If this is who Jesus really and truly is, how should I react? What's the proper response to one who is both God and man, who lovingly and graciously chose to be one of us and to dwell among us in order to reveal the truth to us and then to extend unmerited favor to us? How do you respond to someone like that? I'm, I'm sure there are many good ways to respond, but John highlights two. He invites us to respond by prioritizing Jesus and by beholding Jesus. First, prioritizing Jesus. I see this in John, the author's quote of John the Baptist's words in verse 15. Just a couple Johns in here. He's, he's, he's quoting John the Baptist who said, He who comes after me, meaning Jesus, ranks before me because he was before me. John was physically older than Jesus, but he recognizes that birth order doesn't really play, it doesn't really apply here. The Amplified Bible, I believe, captures well what John is saying. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I and has priority over me, for he existed before me. John recognized that Jesus is in a league all his own. And so he deserves to be prized above all. He deserves to have preeminence over everything in my life. If John's proclamation of Jesus reflects who Jesus truly is, then there really can be no neutrality. You can't just kind of uh, sort of accept him. <laughs> Either you must reject his claims as someone just ludicrous someone who's just totally, totally, you know, off his rocker, or you must worship him. You must prize him above all. You must give him the preeminence that he deserves. John urges us to prioritize Jesus, to make him preeminent, and secondly, he urges us to behold Jesus. In fact, it's by beholding Jesus that we want to prioritize him. In verse 14, John states, we have seen His glory. We've seen His glory. And then in verse 18, John says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God, referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John, by saying we've seen His glory, he's inviting us to look at His glory. He's, he's saying, I want you to see what I've seen. I, I want you to behold what we've beheld. John's inviting us to contemplate this glorious God-man. He says, if you want to know what God is like, look. Look at Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, the apostle, states that the light of the knowledge of God is in the face of Jesus. See Jesus as glorious. Fix your eyes on Him. Soak in the Scriptures and behold His glory. Ask the Spirit to illuminate your mind and your heart to give you eyes to see Him as He truly is. Oh, how we need to see Jesus in all His glory. That's how one comes to faith. 
by seeing Jesus as He truly is and what Jesus has done. That's how we as believers grow in faith. Puritan John Owen said, One of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and in, unto eternity, consists in their beholding the glory of Christ. Behold His glory. And where we see the glory of Christ, the clearest and the brightest is at the cross. It's there that His grace shines like a thousand lightning bolts at once. That He would take my sins as He went to the cross, that He would take my sins and exchange, give me His spotless record, His righteousness is absolutely astounding. And it's love that will melt the hardest of hearts. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. As we do, as we celebrate the Lord's table together, behold His glory. Look with the eyes of your heart at who Jesus is and what He's done for you. And be amazed all over again. Graham Kendrick is the author of a song called Meekness and Majesty. I don't know if he had John 1 in mind when he wrote it, but it captures so well the essence of Christmas according to John. So I'd like you to listen closely to his words. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross. Suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice, and as they crucify, praise, Father, forgive. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, Love indestructible in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of His throne. And then the chorus says, Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down in worship, for this is your God. This is your God. The proper response to the Christmas story is to see Him for who He truly is, to prioritize Him, to praise Him, to prize Him. In other words, it's to bow down and worship. Would you please pray with me?